From EAB, I'm Matt Pellish, and this is Office Hours, the weekly podcast discussing higher education's most important issues. Colleges, universities, they've been competing with one another for quite a long time. And I might even argue that the competition reached a fever pitch in just the last few years, with schools fighting for students, for research grants, fundraising dollars, athletic recruits, you name it. However, in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, schools were tackling these countless questions about reopening the fall, and many started thinking, maybe we should work together. On today's episode, EAB's Sally Amoroso talks with Dr. Christine Reardon, president of Adelphi University here on Long Island, and chair of the Commission on Independent Colleges and Universities in New York. Dr. Reardon's going to walk us through her work with more than 100 schools as they prepare for this very fluid fall opening of campuses, along with the ways that in-person versus remote instruction will impact not only schools and students, but also the communities they serve. They'll talk about collaboration beyond just the fall and why it's more important now than ever before. Thanks for listening, and welcome to Office Hours with EAB. Hi, this is Sally Amoruso, Chief Partner Officer with EAB, and I am here today with Dr. Chris Riordan, President of Adelphi University in New York. Hi, Chris. Hey, Sally. How are you? I am great. How are you? I'm doing well. We are here to talk about an extraordinarily collaborative effort that Chris co-chaired um, through the CICU uh, that resulted in this um, great document called Creating Safe and Resilient Campuses, Suggestions for Reopening and Reimagining Colleges and Universities in New York. And when I say this was collaborative, this was really um, pulling together leadership from across a number of different institutions, as well as public health um, and medical professionals across uh, New York. Chris, can you tell us a little bit about how this came about? Sure, absolutely. So CICU is the Commission on Independent Colleges and Universities, which is the association for the more than 100 private institutions in the state of New York. And I am right. chair the, currently chair of that board. Um, I was talking with our president, Mary Beth LeBate, and we were just talking about the whole issue around COVID-19 and what it was going to look like for restarting higher education. And, you know, we were brainstorming and she, she said, what do you think about us forming a task force? And, you know, immediately said, that's a great idea. We took it to our executive committee for CICU and they said, absolutely, let's do it. So literally within the matter of like three days, I think we reached out to a number of presidents and provosts around the state of New York, um, representing all kinds of institutions from the very small privates to the very large privates like NYU and Columbia and Cornell, and asked people if they were interested. And uh, we were able to form a task force very, very quickly. I co-chaired the task force with Mike Kotlikoff, who is the provost of Cornell University. Um, and then we had right. representatives from across the state, from all the regions, and we also had SUNY um, participate as well. Their provost was part of our task force. So it really reached across all of the, the different kinds of higher ed institutions across the state. Absolutely. Um, and what were some of the goals and objectives you had in bringing this, um, this task force together? So I'm going to give you an analogy um, first, and then I'll get into the goals. So when I was teaching uh, an executive MBA program on leadership, I used to do a module on stra strategic thinking and strategy. And one of the yeah. exercises that I used to do is I would give 
Now, these are executives who had at least 10 years of experience and were kind of mid-30s and up. I'd give them a puzzle, and it was a child's puzzle that was designed for 11-year-olds. But I would take away the edges of the puzzle, and I would take away the picture of the puzzle. And it was often like a black furry cat, so very similar in terms of color, <laughs> color and pattern. And it was always interesting watching them. They'd dump out the puzzle pieces, and then they would start trying to put it together, and they realized that they didn't have the edges. And then some of them right. would come back and ask me for what the picture looked like. And I wouldn't give it to them. And, and what should have taken, you know, normally a five-minute puzzle for an adult, you know, would generally take them 20 to 30 minutes. And mm-hmm. I use this analogy because really in responding to COVID-19, we're trying to solve a puzzle that doesn't have defined edges and that doesn't have an end picture for us. So one of the goals for this task force was to really start putting some of the edges around this puzzle and to really start trying to think through collectively and with the immense talent that we have within the state of New York to think about how and if we could restart higher education. So we felt that by having a collective task force of you know, the great resources that we have in our, in our universities, that we would be able to at least come up with better strategy, with better thinking, um, better innovation, and in how we actually restart higher education. Um, we did have some very, very specific goals associated with the task force and the project. One was, of course, to ensure the safety of our students and our faculty and our staff and anybody who might be on our campuses and to ensure that we had some parameters around that. Uh, We also knew that all of the universities and colleges within the state of New York um, are big economic drivers within the state. So we wanted to be a part of that conversation as an industry with our state leaders and with our governors and to make sure that they understood that as an industry within the state of New York, we had a large economic impact. So we really uh, focused on a couple of, of sections. One was part one of the report focused on what we call the layers of safety and using all of the public health expertise that we had at our universities as well as the medical expertise we wanted to provide the state and the governor and his New York Forward Task Force with what we felt was needed to safely reopen a university or a college. So how we could safely restart. The second part of the report was focused on providing all universities with questions and guidelines that they could use to tailor their own restart plans. Now, in the state of New York, we have institutions that range from 100 students all the way up to 57,000 students. Um, And then the SUNY and CUNY systems are much larger than that. So we knew that everybody's restart plan was going to look different. So part two of the report um, that we developed was really designed for each institution to then be able to go through those questions themselves and look at it in the context of their university and then uh, figure out how they could and needed to restart in each of those areas. So it sounds like you were managing two separate tensions. One is um, the responsibility as economic drivers of your communities and the safety of your students, your faculty, and your staff, and how do you manage that tension? The other is the diversity of institutions and ensuring that institutions have individual agency to figure out what's right for them rather than having that be legislated for them. Certainly with the context of what's happening in the region, 
but giving them the latitude to make the right decisions for their institution. Now, was that um, one of the reasons why you were very intentional about the diversity of participation in the collaboration? Absolutely. We, I think we wanted to impress upon the state as well that, you know, collectively as a group of institutions, we had a large impact, but then individually, we were all very different, you know, and, and so right. the restart, there was not going to be a one size fits all restart plan for a university that it all, everyone needed to understand that it needed to be tailored individually. And um, ultimately, that ended up coming true. The guidelines that the New York State put out allowed each institution to individually put their plan together with some basic guidelines um, that are consistent across all universities. And that's exactly what we wanted to have happen. Um, And so kind of managing um, the diversity of the institutions that we have within the state, we were very intentional with who was included on the task force. Uh, We had people from all regions. We had all sizes of institutions. We had all types of institutions. And furthermore, uh, we held regular, it was almost weekly meetings with all of the member institutions for CICU and then invited our counterparts uh, from the SUNY system uh, when they were available. So we would hold open forums to make sure that we're hearing all of the different institutions' concerns and questions and really trying to make sure that it was an inclusive process um, throughout. And, and, and I would say even furthermore, after the document was released, uh, which everyone was uh, very thankful for because it provided them with a resource to use, uh, CICU has continued to hold weekly meetings where we would talk about things like, how do you safely restart a residence uh, hall? How do you safely right. restart dining? How are you handling you know, classes so that Uh, the provosts and associate provosts and deans and other leaders on campuses could be on a call and talk with other people um, just to brainstorm and and collaborate on how each institution was doing it and get ideas from one another. That's terrific and such an outgrowth of the collaboration that you started. Um, Tell me how you brought in the public health and medical professionals. You had an advisory board, I think? We did. We we had... um, we absolutely put some people on the task force that had medical background as well as uh, who had a public health background. And then as Mm -hmm. we were designing part one of the report, which really were the layers of safety and the testing protocol, uh, we explicitly went out to uh, the top leading public health and medical experts in those areas to get their their buy-in as well as their expertise. So that's reflected in the report. We also, um, as an addendum, ended up sending several memos to the state um, and to the governor's office that were explicit requests around testing and other kinds of public health protocol. And we used our um, experts to help us with that. I mean, with so many great institutions in the state of New York with leading researchers, uh, we were able to easily draw upon our faculty uh, within our, our institutions. And one of the points that um, you made uh, is about how local uh, the business and the the health of uh, a population is in New York, because New York is is massive and you have very regional communities. Can you talk a little bit about some of the collaboration and the the work that this might have prompted uh, with universities really leaning into their communities? Absolutely. 
So the way that New York actually ended up handling um, COVID-19 was to regionalize us. The state of New York ended up looking at regions. So upstate New York, as an example, had very few cases of COVID-19, whereas downstate New York, where I am, Long Island was hit very hard. Um, I also have a a center in Manhattan, which was also the hardest hit and at one point was the epicenter. So I think as a state, we knew that, again, it wasn't a one-size-fits-all per region, that in some cases, we didn't need to keep the entire state locked down. So the governor's office uh, broke everything into regions and then had some what they call kind of metrics for everybody to pass uh, before you could open up a region safely. As a result of the state going into regions, uh, the institutions, the universities and colleges within those regions started collaborating as well. So upstate New York opened up very early um, compared with like Long Island and Manhattan. And so, um, and Manhattan in and of itself has a lot of challenges. So we saw a lot of our colleges and universities collaborating in Manhattan. Uh, We in Long Island, um, both the public and the private institutions were collaborating pretty extensively as well. So I think by the state going with a regional model, it ended up kind of opening the eyes for many of our colleges and universities that they've got a lot of partners within their regions. And it started, I think, some very positive communications and collaborations that may not have otherwise happened. So what are some of the avenues um, for the future that you think this collaboration might lead to um, in terms of uh, institutions collaborating or collaboration with communities? Um, in terms of housing or other other ways that this might open up conversation? You know, I think um, in my career, this this single task force was by far the biggest collaboration that I've seen amongst a group of presidents and provosts and other leadership at universities across the state. Um, and, you know, it it came about for an unfortunate reason, but I think it ended up creating a lot of connections that may not have otherwise been made. So we see a lot more conversations going on. Just like I said, even the weekly meetings that are having about, hey, what are you doing to open the residence hall? Or what are you doing about, you know, Greek life? Or what are you doing about sports? You know, that kind of thing. So just even knowing, I, I think it introduced a lot of people to each other. And then, so now you have people to call. But beyond that, I think we are starting to see collaboration beyond reopening and restarting. So for example, with Adelphi, um, you know, I've had two conversations with two universities about curricular uh, partnerships, doing two plus two programs, four plus one programs um, that, you know, were kind of sparked from uh, this conversation. I've had another meeting with another institution about, you know, maybe sharing housing at some point when we're opening so it did create, I think, um, greater synergies and opportunities for people to do it. Um, I do think going forward, the state of New York does have a procurement system at the state level, but I do think administratively there's some uh, some ways that we can continue to think about collaborating. And then certainly as we move forward with the rollout in the fall, I know all the institutions in each of the regions will be constantly talking about public health and the the cases that are in the region. Um, so we'll continue to collaborate in that area as well. And that's such a good point, Chris, that um, 
this is such a dynamic situation. Mm-hmm. And so ongoing conversation is going to be critical. And um, one of the interesting conclusions of this report is it's not all or nothing. It's not reopening everything or closing everything. Can you talk a little bit about the, the nuances and the rigor that this task force brought to thinking about stages? Absolutely. So it really has to do with the prevalence of cases, I think, is what um, we came to a conclusion on. And so it's managing the prevalence of cases. And so a lot of what we put into the front of the report and the layers of safety is that testing is essential. You have to have at least enough testing available for when you have a positive case, not if you have a positive case, but for when you have a positive case. The contact tracing has to be in place. Um, And then you have to be able to isolate those cases, right? And so if, if you're not able to isolate the cases, then the prevalence grows. So right now we're seeing this play out across the country. As an example, New York um, had no deaths yesterday. And we see all of the regions are uh, less than 2% positive cases of those tested. Um, Whereas we're now seeing new epicenters come up across the country and the prevalence of cases growing. So for us, and when we were setting up this report, it's about managing that percentage of cases. And so one of the things that uh, we have in there is um, obviously if you do have a positive, when you do have a positive case on campus, you have to be able to isolate and quarantine uh, that person if it's a student on campus. And then you also have to um, be able to do that in-depth contact tracing. Um, And then from there, depending upon the reach you have to then determine, are you shutting down a class? Are you shutting down a building? Or are you shutting down the university? So it's all about testing and isolating um, and controlling the prevalence. So as you mentioned, many of our communities across the country are seeing surges right now. And I know a lot of university leaders are really concerned about the community spread as they're approaching um, reopening campus What are some um, points of advice that you would have for them as they are thinking about um, the August, September reopening and trying to move forward with their plans, but also managing this dynamic situation? Yeah, it's, it's, I think it's, um, I think it's probably the biggest single issue right now. So as universities welcome students from all over the country, you know, and I even take New York as, as an example. Right. I, had, I had a parent contact me and say, oh, I feel much safer with my student being in New York than being in our home state, Georgia, because the cases are rising here and they're not in New York. For us, though, you know, as we're welcoming students from all over the country, are they, you know, are you bringing a greater prevalence of, you know, um, positive cases to a, to a college campus? So I think in terms of, um, you know, the advice is, you know, you really have to think about the testing protocol um, for the incoming students. You have to think about whether you ask the students to self-quarantine at home for 14 yeah. days prior to coming to campus on an honor system, or whether you do some kind of quarantine on campus for 14 days for students that are coming from out of state or out of country. 
So you really have to think about that. For those students that are staying on campus, um, many of us are using, you know, uh, we're using, for example, we're sending to their home a saliva self-test. And then once they get to campus, we've got some protocol that will continue to test them while they're on campus. Um, And there's methodologies that you can use where you don't have to test everybody, but you can do, um, you know, some uh, periodic testing. Mm -hmm. And, um, And then it's really a matter of the contact tracing. And then as you, if you see community spread, then you have to shut things down. Um, you know, which is what we've seen, I think, with some of the sports teams that have been brought back and then right. you know, they've had to suspend play or suspend practice for a while um, until they get it under control. So it's really about, you know, quarantining, testing, um, surveillance um, and contact tracing and then trying to prevent the spread. So it seems like we are learning more about this virus every week, if not every day. And one of the new theories that I know is not confirmed, but that is um, being floated out there is around the aerosolization, the ability for the virus to travel um, airborne much further than we had anticipated for longer. And um, certainly we're still trying to confirm that. But if this new type of information comes out, would this task force um, reconvene. How would you incorporate those those new bits of information into um, the work that you have already done? It's a great question, and I think we already have that mechanism in place because we have um, held the weekly open forums. So as new information comes forward, whether it's from the state or whether it's from the federal government, CICU has been very responsive in terms of holding open forums to discuss what that guidance means. And um, so I get almost a a daily email from our president that takes national as well as state guidance and then helps us interpret it. Um, And then as needed, we will hold hold these open forums for our members to have discussions about what it means and how we might um, implement it at our institutions. You know, one of the biggest things that we've all been facing has been um, just the educational requirements associated with many of our professional associations. So um, as a collective group, CICU, we do a lot of advocacy with the state. Um, And then also when a federal issue comes up um, or there's some federal guidance, uh, part of our role as a membership association is to get that out to our members and to help them understand what it means for them. Great. Well, one of the things that I know we've been having conversations around is that this is likely not the last threat or risk that we encounter either as a country or for higher ed. And I wonder if there are lessons from the experience that you've had um, that can be a playbook for the future. Um, and if so, what would be the key things that you would take from having co-chaired and led this task force that might port over into how we might address other big threats? You know, it's a great question. I can remember, um, I'll I'll tell you a little bit of a story. Um, I can remember when I was a a dean uh, doing planning for the bird flu, you know, and the pandemic. And and in my mind, it was, it was a tabletop exercise, you know, and it was, it was something that was so far out of reach. It was just, you know, you, you did it, but you didn't really internalize it as much. I right. Think. Right. 
And recently I was talking with one of my faculty who is an international national public health expert. And he said, you know, Chris, he goes, I have done all of these exercises. He goes, I've been through SARS, I've been through MERS. And he says, I've never seen anything like this before. You know, so I think the magnitude has really, um, while we plan and we were prepared, kind of, you know, it's gone beyond the scale uh, for what I think sure. anybody could have expected. So in terms of how we translate a lot of this going forward from a leadership standpoint, I was very fortunate that a couple years ago, I put in place at our university um, a crisis management protocol and a crisis communications protocol. This was in addition to our emergency management protocol. So um, in January, when we first started uh, knowing that this was going to impact our international students, I created an, um, a level one emergency team to start looking at it mm-hmm. and what it meant for the university. A month and later, who was part of that team? I'm sorry, tell, tell us about the composition of that team. Yeah, so we have um, our public safety emergency management. We actually have an emergency management degree program at the university at an undergrad and graduate. Right. The people who are involved in that are part of it. In this particular case, we brought in some of our public health faculty as part of that team. Um, We have representatives from from the provost office. We have representatives from the dean's office um, and representatives from the president's office, as well as the administrative offices. Um, So, you know, and it for each emergency, you kind of form the team that's needed to respond to it. And obviously, a pandemic is very different than a hurricane you know, yeah. kind of a response. Um, so, but we immediately put in place our protocol uh, around communications and everything else. So one of the, I, and I would say this to every president and every university leader is if you don't already have a crisis communications or protocol in place, then you should be doing it now. Um, and then by February, right. I escalated it to a level two. And then by March, mid-March, I escalated it to a level three. And we were so much more prepared than many of our sister institutions. I mean, the communications were constant from January all the way through, you know, uh, we're still communicating, but I didn't stop that emergency management uh, protocol until probably about um, a month or two ago when we converted it to the restart team. But you know, lessons learned is you got to take crises seriously and you've got to have a protocol in place. I would say you're doing the simulations and doing the tabletop exercises are really important. Um, right. Also getting people to really understand the seriousness of it um, and to try to think about out as many scenarios as you can. But like I said earlier, we've been solving a puzzle without the edges and we still don't have yeah. the final picture of what it's going to look like. So be flexible as well. Right. And so much of the fall with this dynamic situation is that optionality. Have you at Adelphi uh, really been thinking about building in different avenues and optionality that you can trigger at any, any, any time? And if so, tell us a little bit about how you laid those out. Sure. So we, um, I think many institutions have probably done this, but we have put in place four different types of classes that students can take. Uh, one is mm-hmm. a traditional class that is in person. The second is a hybrid class, you know, which is part online, part in person. A third is completely online. 
And then a fourth is what they typically call kind of a high flex class, which is half the class comes one week and half the class comes the following week. Um, Got it. So that it's it's uh, not quite a hybrid class, but it's um, in person, but alternating um, groups of students that come in. Um, every single one of our classes has been required to be able to immediately go online if needed. So even our traditional classes, our hybrid or our high flex classes, know that at any point in time, they may have to go 100% online. So we've asked all of our instructors and faculty to build that into their syllabus and to plan for that in case it does occur. Um, all of our staff positions, we have two levels of business continuity uh, plans. One is 100% remote uh, for every single right. unit on campus. And uh, now they have put together what we call hybrid business continuity plans. That's reduced density, partial online, um, or partial remote and partial in-person. And that's um, by different areas. So student financial services, enrollment, you know, alumni all have, we all have business continuity plans for every single one of the units on campus. But everybody Great. knows that they need to be able to go 100% remote again um, on a moment's note. At any moment. Yep. Exactly. One question that we've been getting uh, from many of our university leaders, and, and I'll, I'll end with this, is just that this um, does place a huge um, um, challenge on faculty. Um, mm -hmm. And it's asking a lot of them in terms of the flexibility, in terms of the dual planning, um, really asking them to flex some muscles that they may not have developed fully. Um, how are you thinking about supporting faculty through that process? Yeah, I think that it's a great question. And actually, this pandemic has put a lot of stress on everyone, I would say, overall. Yeah. Students and families and staff, and particularly in our region, um, where so many people have been hard hit, and we had many deaths in the area as well. So I would say overall, just mentally, as well as just having to flex into new areas has been a burden for everyone in the community. Yeah. For our faculty, no having to move, you know, in the span of two weeks, you know, from before going on spring break and then having to come back from spring break and being 100% remote was challenging for many of them. And so our Faculty Center for Professional Excellence, you know, worked 24-7 and tirelessly to help all of our faculty with, you know, and those that were reaching out, giving them tips on, how you conduct Zoom sessions or how you put things online or use our, we use Moodle, which is the instructional, you know, website. Right. Um, and then since that time, we've had um, our faculty center has also been focused on and on doing an online academy. And, and when we kind of tapped out their capacity, we went with a third party vendor to provide additional instruction this summer for the faculty that wanted it to learn how um, to more effectively do classes online. And then I would say I, I saw a great camaraderie among our faculty uh, supporting one another and giving each other tips mm. on how to do things as well. Um, so, you know, it's not been easy. And I think many of them learned a lot in terms of moving to online classes. Um, I think many of them are eager to be back in person when it's safe. Um, and, you know, we saw a lot of creativity as well. I 
I think about our yeah. dance faculty member who, you know, I, I watched him teach dance via Zoom. He was doing the dance move <laughs> in his backyard. And then each one of his students would do the exact same dance move. It was just inspiring. And you, you don't think about being able to teach dance via video, but he found, he found a way to do it. So I give all of them a lot of credit um, and uh, give them all kinds of kudos and accolades for really doing a great job and being very, very creative. Thank you. Um, Chris, thank you for the insights. Thank you for leading this amazing effort and sharing the results of what the task force produced um, for other institutional leaders to tap into. Um, really enjoyed the conversation and we'll be um, continuing to, to see how things develop. So good luck with the, the summer and fall. Thanks so much, Sally. And thanks for all you do at EAB. Thanks again for listening. Join us again next week when I'm joined by higher ed reporter Melissa Korn from the Wall Street Journal to talk about her newly released book, Unacceptable, which explores the Varsity Blues admission scandal and pulls back the curtain, exposing a very dark side of college admissions. For Office Hours with EAB, I'm Matt Pellish.